Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The birth of religion is commonly held to lie far back in human history, with the occasional exception of an angel Moroni or the borderline godhood of a cult leader. But in her book, Accidental Gods, Anna Della Subin documents how a surprising number of 20th century men, and it's almost always men, found themselves labeled divine, sometimes without their knowledge and nearly always without their consent. Some, like General Douglas MacArthur, were even crowned four different ways on three separate continents. Anna Della Subin, a senior editor at Badoon Magazine, joins us to explore the urges that lead us to declare a mortal man a god, and what this desire tells us about modernity. Thanks for chatting with me, Anna Della. Oh, thanks so much, Stephanie. It's great to be on the show. You studied the history of religion at Harvard Divinity School. How did you begin connecting the dots between these disparate examples of accidental gods? Or, or I guess, how did you stumble on these men who stumble into divinity? Yeah, so it's funny. You know, I had the idea for the book just a year after I graduated from Harvard Divinity School. Um, and there I had been kind of immersed in ancient ideas of divinity and deification, which were, you know, quite different from our own in, in the modern age. And then uh, when I graduated, I took a job at this Middle Eastern cultural magazine called Badoon. Um, and only a few months later, the uprisings of the Arab Spring broke out uh, and we picked up our office and moved to Cairo uh, just off of Tahrir Square um, and kind of found ourselves plunged into this moment of just pure political ecstasy. Uh, Mubarak had just fallen. Um, and so I found myself thinking a lot about charismatic autocrats and just kind of why ideas catch fire, what moves people to act politically. And, you know, I was, I was really thinking a lot about political theology, like how all political ideas are really sacred ideas and in new forms. Um, and I, I guess at some point I kind of connected all those dots, um, and I thought, well, what if what if a, an autocrat or a dictator just has too much charisma or too much soft power? What happens then? He might find himself turned into a god, um, like Haile Selassie and the Rastafarians. Um, became obsessed with this idea of how a man or a politician on one side of the earth could become God on the other side without ever consenting to it or agreeing to it or even knowing about it. Um, so then I traveled from Cairo to Addis Ababa and found myself in Haile Selassie's old bedroom and kind of reveling at the paradoxes between his humanness and his divinity. Um, and so the idea really took off from there. One very interesting aspect of this is your contrast between modernity and religion and how modernity likes to distinguish itself from religion, but in many ways, it's just the same thing in new clothes. And so, you know, most of your examples spring from the cusp of the 20th century, you know, all the way pretty much to the present. The surprise for me, I think, was realizing just how many modern figures were recast in this mold. So I think, you know, we still live with this myth that modernity 
is a disenchanted age, you know, that science and philosophy chase the spirits out of our world and that the world we live in is profoundly secular. And so the idea that a man might find himself a god just seems completely absurd or the purview of some pre-modern, you know, isolated society somewhere or other. But what I'm trying to show in my book is that actually, you know, impulses of deification and unexpected ideas of divinity are all around us. There's, you know, the old trope that modernity welcomed in the death of God, as Misha declared, he asked who will wipe the blood from us. But what I'm arguing is that actually modernity has been all about creating new gods, um, often in very unexpected ways and places. And I think, you know, what really drives this is that it's a response to the immense loss political upheaval, hardship that peoples have suffered in the modern age. You know, my story begins with Columbus's arrival in the New World and consistently in almost every every context that I look at, deification arises when people are looking for some something to grasp hold of to make sense of deeply difficult, strange, bewildering circumstances of modernity. Deification has also been a, a tool of liberation movements uh, in many of the contexts that I look at. And Haile Selassie and the Rastafarians is, is a great example of that. Right. I mean, like Haile Selassie was an autocrat. I think if he had been the ruler of Jamaica, he would not have spawned <laughs> the resistance movement or been worshipped as a god, and yet he was. What is the story there, and, and why does that keep happening? Yes, exactly. So the birth of Rastafari is full of paradoxes. Um, in 1930, Haile Selassie crowned himself emperor of Ethiopia, and he invited all the powers of the earth to attend his coronation because he was deep in the struggle for succession with another princely nobleman and he needed to create this image of legitimacy for himself. Um, and so there were a lot of journalists there covering the event and many of them described it as this kind of unrehearsed chaos. But the American Consul General was there covering it for National Geographic. And he wrote of it in these solemn biblical tones. Um, and he had this one line that seemed to suggest that King George V's own son, the Duke of Gloucester, had actually bowed down before Haile Selassie on bended knee. And so on the other side of the earth in Jamaica, people heard the news of the coronation and they saw this issue of National Geographic and several people independently had the same idea that God was alive on earth right now and he was a black man. And that was a deeply powerful idea on an island that was still under British colonial rule um, and that was dealing, you know, with the everyday injustices and oppressions of British imperialism. But, you know, beyond the fact that Haile Selassie was this terrible autocrat against his own people, he became this powerful 
God for a Black liberation movement, and he himself didn't identify as Black. Um, he considered himself Semitic. So Marcus Garvey, who was a great trade unionist and activist, um, he wrote off Haile Selassie as a Black ally uh, in the struggle. But then Marcus Garvey also found himself caught up in the religion of Rastafari as the kind of John the Baptist figure. And, you know, the paradoxes continued. The religion was soon called Rastafari, but Haile Selassie, uh, after his coronation, that was his correct name. Uh, so he would fine anyone who called him Rastafari. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it kind of transcended all of these paradoxes and being compliant is just never an important attribute of any god, you know. Um, so it, it kind of didn't matter. It transcended all of this. And it became a deeply mobilizing force uh, in Jamaica and spreading across the world uh, to count around a million followers today. And so by the 1970s, politicians such as Michael Manley in Jamaica, were using Rastafari ideas to move the country to democratic socialism. So you have, you know, the worship of, of this autocrat becomes a kind of profoundly emancipatory, even democratizing force. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple other examples of that. You talk about 1920s Niger, and I'll just quote here. You say the spirit movement of the Hauka was a way of occupying the French, just as the French had occupied Niger. Deification was a means of dissidence and resistance on a plane too high for the mechanisms of European imperial authority to reach. Can you talk a little bit more about that example? Because in the case of the Hauka, they are actually being possessed by their oppressors. It's not an oppressor they don't know. It's a figure very well known to them. Yeah, so this is probably the weirdest type of deification <laughs> in my book. And that's that's a kind of deification in which the spirit of a person is said to become this kind of god uh, that enters the bodies of mediums and acts through them. And often it's described as being physically uncomfortable and and quite bizarre. But, you know, in the case of the Hauka, it became this profound force of resistance under French colonialism. So suddenly in this village, spirits of French colonial officers started possessing the bodies of mediums. It started a counter society within the village and the French got very, you know, terrified of what was happening. And this one officer in particular called Horace Crochichia decided to suppress the movement and locked up all of its participants in jail. But then soon enough, his own spirit was said to have entered the prisoners and was possessing them and led them to break out of the jail. So you have Crocicia's divine double, as it were, leading the prisoners out of jail. I think he would later in life recall it as being very strange, uh, but powerful. So the Hauka ends up spreading 
across West Africa, it goes into Ghana and the Ivory Coast, and there's this kind of constellation of anti-colonial spirit cults that arise. There's one that creates deified doubles of all the Belgian colonizers in the Congo um, as a way of kind of appropriating and subverting their power. Yeah, I think claiming of power in some way is a key part of a lot of this. Another example you talk about that I had no clue was even a thing, and it I was shocked to have missed it because it happened four times in three continents and four countries, <laughs> was General Douglas MacArthur. Um, and I'll just quote here again, each expressed a prayer for something deeply opposed to the politics and agenda of the man himself. If not the one, capital O, he was infinitely divided by four. Each part of General Douglas MacArthur became a way of imagining a world made anew. Tell us more about the Lord and Savior, General Douglas MacArthur. So General MacArthur is a very special case because he finds himself deified in four completely different places and ways all at once. Um, so in Panama, when American troops descended to build the canal, they were destroying the landscape and displacing people and unleashing new sicknesses. And so certain Guna people decided to create idols of MacArthur to use in curing rituals where they would deploy MacArthur as a military commander on the spirit plane to go fight against the destruction that the American military itself had wrought. And this happened in, in a number of different rituals. You can see these kind of idols of MacArthur, which are about seven feet tall. There's one in the Natural History Museum in Manhattan. So this was a kind of act of taking all the power of MacArthur to fight for the Guna people's own side. That was the first way. The second way, um, in Japan, after its defeat in World War II, the Emperor Hirohito was forced to renounce his status as living God. Um, and MacArthur, as he was put into this position of power over the country, found himself inhabiting this void of divinity that the emperor had vacated. So floods of sacrificial offerings began pouring into MacArthur's headquarters in Tokyo. And he kept receiving these letters that spoke of him as a deity. Um, and it was this kind of moment, a very brief moment, where people in Japan were trying to make sense of this completely bewildering new circumstance of the defeat and of an American ruling over Japan. Um, so it was kind of a way to sort of grasp hold of old concepts and use them as a bridge to new realities. And in Korea, after the war, which MacArthur was a very central figure in, his spirit began to possess the bodies of shamans from the north who had been forced to flee to the south. And in one really interesting case, he would speak to these shamans in their sleep and tell them to go walk to his statue. Uh, and so they would find themselves waking up at the foot of his statue and not knowing how they got there. That was also a kind of way after 
this, you know, moment of upheaval of kind of trying to make sense of new circumstances. And the same was true in the fourth way in which MacArthur became divine, which was um, in the archipelago of Biak near New Guinea. He entered this myth which told of a prophet called Manarmakari, who was going to liberate the islands from all hardship and poverty and even death itself. Um, and so it became a kind of powerful idiom of emancipation for the islands, which were under Dutch colonial rule. I feel like Douglas MacArthur alone embodies so many of the categories of men becoming gods accidentally. <laughs> Poor guy. And he was dead before at least one of these, right? Like he was fully in the ground before he was deified, right? Yeah. So in the case of the Biak archipelago, he was he was dead. And in the Korea, his spirit would continue to haunt after his death too. Um, but it's it's so true what you say. He does, you know, embody so many of the classic attributes uh, of men who find themselves mistaken for gods. His stature, his height, you know, many of the figures in my book are very tall. He himself kind of spoke in this prophetic idiom where he would say things like, I shall return after he was forced to flee the Philippines. Um, and so he, he, you know, he was famous for his vanity um, and he cultivated an aura of power, but he would find this whole other kind of godhood in a way that that he would never have expected. Right. I mean, I think what unites all of the examples we've discussed so far is that at the heart of it, there is a figure imbued with the power of the state, whether it's, you know, the absolute ruler, a colonizing force or the military. But there are some other examples that don't fit in quite there, even though they are tall, um, of anthropologists who are taken for gods, which is a super interesting category to me at least because at least in contemporary anthropology this was not always true there is you know this wrestling with power imbalance of generally white anthropologists coming into usually indigenous settings and struggling with the power imbalance and trying not to project it and yet despite all that very frequently are taken or believe they are taken as gods or as messengers or as like figures on the edge of heaven and earth. So I think this is so interesting. And I'd love for you to talk more about this category. In the case of the anthropologists, they also kind of stake this claim to a secular authority. You know, they're kind of going into all these contexts and trying to be objective um, and scientific about, you know, learning about the peoples they want to study. And, and so often they find themselves tangled up in their own object of study. In my book, I particularly look at the story of Nathaniel Tarn, um, who is very tall. He towers over me. In the 1950s, he was sent to do fieldwork in this village of Santiago Atitlan in Guatemala. And he was just kind of going about his his work, trying desperately to get people to talk to him. Uh, he was struggling with that. 
he ended up embroidering a yellow sun on his trousers as a kind of conversational starter um, because no one wanted to talk to him. But one day someone came into his study and said, you know, a lot of people here think that you're a god. And he was very confused. Uh, and he has he can have a slightly curmudgeonly demeanor. So he was, you know, <laughs> he, he was a bit skeptical. Uh, but he arrived at this time of conflict um, between those who still worship this indigenous deity called Maximon or the mom, who in his physical form was this kind of four foot tall bundle of clothes uh, with a carved wooden mask. And so those who worshipped the mom were being persecuted by Orthodox Catholics. And some priests actually stole the mask of the mom. And Nathaniel was able to track down its whereabouts and took it to Paris for safekeeping, um, which was a questionable decision. So the god had essentially disappeared from this village in Santiago Atitlan. And then 20 years later, Nathaniel decided that the time was right to return the mask to the village, um, to repatriate it. And when he returned, he found that all of these myths around him had kind of kept simmering about his divinity and they were amplified when he returned with the physical form of the god itself. Um, his wife was with him and, and wrote this poem that kind of captures what it's like to watch your husband being received as a god. It's the only chapter in my book that I'm, you know, really... I'm actually going on a road trip with him. Um, I'm really talking to someone who was taken for a god and and just finding out what it was like, you know? What is What does it mean to be taken for a god? Like, what do you do with that in your personal life? Um, Nathaniel is a really, a really kind of interesting case on that. You know, he beyond just the contradictions between being an anthropologist and trying to be objective and then finding yourself a god, you know, it also, you know, Nathaniel's like all of us, he has kind of depressed moods and happy moods. And what does being a god do, you know? How does it make you think of yourself differently? I think that we have a kind of contradiction between sometimes kind of wanting to live forever or wanting to end it all and being a god kind of electrifies that paradox, you know. It's hard to know what to do with with your own divinity. So in my travels with Nathaniel, I was really trying to get to the bottom of that. You know, in across reviews of my book, People have asked, you know, well, do I really believe in these stories or should should we believe in these stories? Like, what does it mean to ask, like, did people in Santiago Atitlan really believe in the divinity of Nathaniel? Um, but I'm more interested in how these stories are written down and told and kind of the myth making. And so in that story, I'm kind of pulling back my Wizard of Oz curtain and showing how I'm implicated too in, in the creations of these myths. Um, 
and I'm very captivated, you know, by his divinity, you know, too. Did he wear it lightly? Did he glow? <laughs> He's very tall. <laughs> okay, no I think short he gods. Does... <laughs> yeah. Actually, no, because Haile Selassie is, you know, famously very petite. I think I'm most impressed that his wife stayed with him. You know, I can imagine if you have a god in one side of a marriage, it might lead to some complications. Yeah, maybe she's a bit tired. <laughs> well, speaking of women, of which we have not really spoken, what about accidental goddesses? You know, besides being generally shorter than men, why aren't more women deified in this way? That is a very good question. Um, you know, when I set out to write this book, I didn't intend to write a book entirely about men. Um, I was really surprised by how few figures I found. Um, and I think on on the one hand, you have to look at who's writing down the stories. So many of them are collected by European Christian sailors, missionaries, military officers, colonial bureaucrats. Um, and these are scribes who are coming from within a tradition in which God is male and he's white. You know, to ask who gets mistaken for God, well, women just don't look like God to these storytellers. So there is this this real absence of stories. But a really interesting exception to this is in the context of India. So in different Indian traditions, there's this, you know, ancient idea of deifying people who've died in violent accidents or suddenly or in tragic ways. And it's a way to try to mediate with the power of death itself. Um, the idea is that the dead become the violence that they've experienced um, and they they can kind of share in its power so they can affect the fates of the living. And so to deified people who've died in accidents, for instance, becomes this powerful way to try to like reverse our own fates or end misfortune. Um, and so in India, you find many stories of women who've been deified or worshipped at tomb shrines after their death. One such figure is Queen Victoria, who becomes a goddess in this village in Orissa in the mid-19th century. And, you know, it's it's interesting because here's Queen Victoria, who has absolute power as empress and even becomes a goddess. And she herself didn't believe in women's rights. Um, she was deeply against political power for women, despite herself. Uh, so she's another, like, very paradoxical god along the same lines as Haile Selassie. You know, she she thought that suffragettes should be whipped for their <laughs> insurgency. But I end the book with a kind of romantic, almost utopian hope for a future in which we find divinity in women as well as in men. I had one more question for you, which is mostly because I'm dying to know about the deification of Prince Philip, you know, late consort of Queen Elizabeth, who was worshipped as a god in Vanuatu. 
And even though he's shaken off his mortal coil, I'm wondering if he still lives on as a god. How have residents responded to his death? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. It seems like there might be a schism arising in the religion uh, because some of Philip's worshippers think that Philip's spirit has now entered Charles. Uh, and so there's a faction of the religion that's now starting to focus its worship around Charles. But there are others who disagree with that and think that, you know, Philip's spirit lives on eternally as Philip. It'll be really interesting to see what happens, especially, you know, anyone who's watched like The Crown, it might seem <laughs> even more absurd to find divinity in Charles. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I just side with the Orthodox Philippus, but we'll see. But what really interests me is, you know, just how in, in the Philip religion, um, watching the news, reading the internet, you know, all of this becomes kind of powerful material for scripture and for doing theology. So, you know, even long before Philip's death, his worshipers were following the news of him and interpreting things in all these different ways that we would never imagine, you know, whether it's like extreme weather events that were the work of Philip um, or the proverbial act of putting a black man in the White House uh, with the election of Obama that was also interpreted as being an act of Philip in the world. I think it's just such an interesting glimpse into how all religions and all scriptures get formed, you know, like we're watching this happen in real time, but there were very similar acts, you know, that happened in in the creations of of anything that we might consider a religion. So Philip's godhood is a more visible form of that process today. So we'll see how it plays out. We have links in the show notes to Anna Della Supin's new book, Accidental Gods, as well as an earlier essay she wrote on the religion that sprung up around Prince Philip in the London Review of Books. You can also have a look at what those totems of General Douglas MacArthur look like and more. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm-hmm.